This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and uh, I'm going to look today at um, the war reporting on the Eastern Front during Operation Barbarossa. This kind of neatly dovetails two themes together that uh, I've been following over time. Firstly, the uh, Barbarossa podcasts I've been doing recently and secondly, the issue of uh, war reporting in in the 20th century. One of the great paradoxes uh, about war reporting on the Eastern Front is that despite the fact that it was the biggest land battle or the the biggest theatre of Uh, operations of the Second World War, or indeed of any war, with the numbers of um, troops on either side eclipsing uh, any other theatre of of war during World War II, the actual uh, amount of war reportage, uh, accurate and um, well-established war reportage on the Eastern Front is, is fairly thin on the ground. There were some significant um, well-known Western journalists in Russia and obviously Soviet journalists with the, the Red Army. But of course uh, the German army, the Wehrmacht, had its own embedded reporters and produced its own version of the truth as well. And this had the effect of ensuring that uh, Western readers confused about uh, events in Russia they relied on uh, official accounts from uh, the Soviet Union, which were generally reported in uh, British and American newspapers in the uh, most generalised of terms. Now, it's, it's hardly surprising when um, Britain and America are fighting their own battles in their own uh, theatres of operations in the Pacific, in North Africa, for example, for them to focus 
um, almost exclusively on their own uh, achievements and setbacks. But the uh, question of uh, Russia and the Russian front would be decisive in the, the outcome of the war. And because it was so very poorly understood, this fact alone is largely lost on um, Western, uh, Western readerships in the aftermath of the Second World War in Great Britain, as far as uh, the British are concerned by and large, that the war involved uh, the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk, the Blitz, North Africa and D-Day and some uh, perhaps less well understood things are happening in Burma uh, as well. Um, the conception of, of what the war was um, was based in the information that people during the war actually received and also the interpretations they made of it thereafter. So Russia's kind of relative absence from the attention of um, Western journalists goes on to shape sort of popular perceptions of the war in Britain and America thereafter and obviously um, historiographies uh, going on into the uh, long into the post-war era. And it would eventually be things like the uh, 1970s production of The World at War that would bring home in its entirety uh, the Russian front to uh, an entirely new generation of viewers in Great Britain and around the world. Now, as I've said previously, uh, Barbarossa was common knowledge across Europe uh, before it began. The uh, movements of troops and the uh, loose tongs of everybody from uh, diplomats down to journalists and you know uh, the general public uh, across the various Axis uh, states um, meant that very few people were taken by surprise except, of course, the various uh, daily newspapers of uh, Britain, uh, America and Canada. On June the 22nd, there were only seven Western journalists in Russia. Um, Erskine Caldwell uh, and his wife, uh, Margaret Bork-White, who were uh, doing a feature for Life magazine about uh, the Soviet countryside, of all things. Um, correspondents from the Times and the New York Times were nowhere to be found. And instead, the uh, normal uh, news services um, of Reuters, uh, United Press, Associated Press, um, and one journalist, A.T. Cholleton of the Daily Telegraph, um, were, were present in Russia, but with little idea about what was about to happen. So one does wonder slightly about their news-gathering skills. So it was Nazi Germany that broke the story. The uh, Western press took their information from uh, official pronouncements by the Third Reich itself. One week earlier, German correspondents had been briefed uh, about the impending operation and all telephone communications from Berlin had been severed to prevent there being any um, deliberate or unwitting transference of uh, key uh, top-secret information. At a press conference um, on the, at the German Foreign Office uh, at 6am on Sunday, the 22nd of June, Joachim von Ribbentrop 
made the official announcement. Their correspondents were then allowed to uh, send their stories uh, back to their various uh, countries um, immediately. Um, there was a broadcast on Radio Berlin, um, which was picked up in London and in New York, and the headlines are appeared within the day on uh, London and New York evening newspapers. But of course it was the German reporters that had the exclusives. Um, a German reporter, Karl Heinz Seiss, was flown over the uh, battlefield uh, by the Luftwaffe um, for the Frankfurter Zeitung, and the story landed on uh, Monday, June the 23rd, which had the first accounts of the fighting. Uh, Seiss wrote, The attack against the enemy begins. There is a target just below, a marvellous sight to see. There are many large hangars at the edge of the airstrip, lined up as if on parade, there is a mass of Soviet-Russian fighter planes. The bombs for our plane fall accurately and with excellent results. Right on the nose. The enemy craft on the ground burst into flames and the fires spring from one to the other. And this would have been a fairly accurate uh, state of affairs. The majority of the Soviet Air Force was destroyed in the first couple of days on the ground as Stalin deliberated about what to do. The, uh, Stan the belief that Stalin had was that um, the attack was either a hoax or um, an accident or there was some other explanation for it and he was determined not to retaliate less to provoke Hitler and give the Allies the uh, Nazi-Soviet war that they wanted. So the um, refusal to scramble aircraft not only came from that, but from the fact that most of Stalin's most senior air marshals had been executed in the latter stages of the Stalinist purges. The entire infrastructure of command and control of air defence had broken down because so many experienced officers had been executed or imprisoned. In the first couple of days, 2,000 aircraft, nearly the uh, entirety of the Russian Air Force at that point, was uh, destroyed, along with several thousand tanks, and half a million men were captured, with a million others taken prisoner. Nazi newspapers reported that um, the reason for the ease of the invasion was that Soviet uh, citizens had uh, believed a pernicious and now clearly untrue Soviet myth. Um, the belief that any power, capitalist, fascist and what have you, attacking the Soviet Union would collapse within hours because the workers of that state would not tolerate uh, a war being waged against the Russian proletariat and would rise up and go on strike and the uh, entire society would crumble. Therefore, the Nazi newspapers suggested um, this meant that the uh, rather slow-witted Slavs over the border um, hadn't uh, invested in proper defences and they had been really relying on this strategy that did not um, account for the fact that the German people would unite as one. Now, of course, uh, information being communicated on the Soviet side 
um, the breakdown of information goes far beyond bad reporting or lack of uh, journalistic um, know-how. Um, it was really the kind of the breakdown in communications of government itself. Uh, the uh, Soviet high command uh, found it difficult and the Politburo found it difficult to actually find out the scale of the disaster um, because of the chaos that Stalin had wrought throughout the um, army and civil defences in the previous few years and the the source of the chaos really was Stalinism itself that um, weak defences or bad news or setbacks were simply um, not reported that people um, on the ground were too afraid to um, admit to uh, being uh, the crisis that there was. The first communique uh, that was published at 10pm on June the 22nd gave a strong impression that the Soviet leaders had no understanding of the scope of the disaster. It said, In the course of the day, regular German troops fought our frontier troops but achieved minor success in a number of sectors. And it took until July the 3rd for Stalin to emerge from his existential crisis at his dash outside Moscow and to uh, broadcast to the nation, comrades, citizens, brothers and sisters, fighters of our army and navy. My words are addressed to you, dear friends. The perfidious military attack by Hitlerite Germany on our fatherland began on June the 22nd. Is continuing. In spite of the heroic resistance of the Red Army, and although the enemy's finest divisions and finest air force units have already been smashed and have met their doom on the field of battle, the enemy continues to push forward, hurling fresh force to the front. Hitler's troops have succeeded in capturing Lithuania, a considerable part of Latvia, the western part of Belarusia, and part of western Ukraine. The fascist aircraft are extending the range of their operations bombing Mamansk, Orsha, Mugilev, Smolensk, Kiev, Odessa, Sebastopol. Grave dangers overhang our country. How could it have happened that our glorious Red Army surrendered a number of our cities and districts to the fascist armies? Is it really true that the German fascist troops are invincible, as the braggart fascist propagandists are ceaselessly blaring forth? Of course not. History shows us that there are no invincible armies and never have been. Napoleon's army was considered invincible, but it was beaten successively by the armies of Russia, England and Germany. Kaiser Wilhelm's uh, German army in the period of the First Imperialist War was also considered invincible, but was beaten several times by Russian and Anglo-French troops, and was finally smashed by Anglo-French forces. The same must be said of Hitler's Germany, German fascist army of today. This army has not yet met with serious resistance on the continent of Europe. Only on our territory has it met with serious resistance. And if as a result of this resistance the finest divisions of Hitler's German fascist army have been defeated by our Red Army, this means that it too can be smashed and will be smashed, as will the armies of Napoleon and Wilhelm. 
So this was the first official communique to the Russian people. Obviously, there are wildly misleading moments in there indicating that the Red Army is doing far better. But the interesting thing about it is the tone of um, the, the language that Stalin uses, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to the Russian people in a way that he's never done before, talking to them uh, in distinctly non-partisan terms and appealing for a sense of national unity. Stalin knew full well how weak his position was and how he had all but handed the keys to Russia to Germany and was desperate to try to salvage his position somehow. And from here on in, a very careful managing of news and uh, propaganda was an integral part of the Russian war effort to prevent Russian people from uh, embracing any kind of possible defeatism or um, to uh, come to believe that the war was hopeless. Private radios were confiscated by the militia. Um, loudspeakers were placed all over Moscow, um, making sure that broadcasts were heard by um, everybody, um, and particularly the Stalin broadcast. And news uh, that came back from the front um, was the only front, the word of mouth that inevitably uh, propagates during wartime, was the only alternate source of information. Um, official um, communiques um, would be broadcast, but never really go into details, specifics and data. Um, and the the fact is that this was not dissimilar to um, the other Allied powers who were very, very careful with the information that they handed out for very similar reasons. Heavy repetition of key phrases uh, and the general uh, lack of uh, sophistry in the writing uh, of uh, official wartime propaganda, um, bear in mind um, when in Britain there was uh, everybody from uh, George Orwell to Dylan Thomas uh, to J.B. Priestley uh, working as uh, wartime propagandists. So uh, there, there was uh, some kind of literary flair uh, there at the, uh, the Ministry of Information. Um, the repetition of key phrases gave Soviet citizens important clues as to uh, what was really going on. Um, when uh, it was announced that there was fighting in the Smolensk district direction or in the Minsk direction, uh, the key word in the communique was always direction. Uh, and it normally meant people deciphered that the, the, uh, the where was being discussed had already been lost. Direction was a way of explaining that the Red Army was uh, retreating. Some of the worst news was masked by the term heavy defensive battles being fought against superior enemy forces, um, which again very quickly became code to um, a military collapse or full uh, retreat. Complex situations um, were, uh, again, another euphemism, um, and or the statement that nothing of consequence had occurred, which could both mean that nothing had actually happened, 
or that there had been a military disaster that the, uh, the army was not willing to disclose. Throughout the war, uh, a series of Soviet journalists uh, became uh, household names and national figures um, uh, as a result of their retreat uh, and then later offensive with the uh, Red Armies. Um, Ilya Ehrenberg um, wrote for the Red Star and was a uh, bitterly uh, angry uh, anti-German polemicist and uh, later a uh, vituperous figure uh, of the Cold War attacking the West. Um, his work was often syndicated in uh, Western newspapers. Uh, Vasily Grossman was perhaps the most famous. He wrote the famous book uh, Life and Fate and his uh, war correspondence has been uh, immortalised. I think Anthony Beaver wrote a book about him. Um, Konstantin Simonov, uh, another key figure. If you want to read about Simonov in depth, get uh, Orlando Feige's The Whisperers and the story of Simonov is and his um, rise to being um, a celebrated um, poet and literary figure um, and almost kind of like the, the Hemingway of Russia. Um, a rather larger-than-life character who lived extremely uh, lavish lifestyle as uh, one of Stalin's favourite journalists. Uh, Orlando Feiges writes kind of very, very great depth about him uh, in the Whisperers, so well worth um, a read. Um, those are the were the three key um, war correspondents. Um, Ehrenberg in 1942 wrote, We did not create our life easily, but this rough and polished life was our own way of life. It reminded one of the rough draft of an astounding poem, all blotted and scratched. When we were building nurseries, evil news came to us from the West. They were building bombers which would kill hundreds of children in one night. The smell of Germany's animal breath was wafted to us, and we said to our wives, you'll have to wear the old wedding dress another winter. And this uh, version of uh, Soviet history that Ehrenberg was putting across, this uh, uh, was um, uh, published on the anniversary of the October Revolution, uh, and it was a way, really, of, of him presenting the Soviet Union as being uh, whiter than white, as being in entirely innocent, uh, and uh, the victim of uh, capitalist and fascist aggression. And as I've said before, part of the, uh, the way in which um, Hitler was able to surprise Stalin was that Stalin had bought into a conventional Marxist-Leninist interpretation of what fascism was. It was essentially capitalism's attack dog. Well, that may well possibly have elements of truth to it, but as far as Hitler was concerned, Hitler wasn't in the thrall of uh, capitalist powers. Instead, he viewed uh, the Soviet Union from the prism of racial thinking. Throughout the 1930s, there had been a, a lively scene at the Metropole Hotel in Moscow um, where the Soviet uh, hierarchy um, and Western journalists rubbed shoulders uh, looking for uh, exclusives and... By 1941, that scene was very much uh, diminished. However, 
some of the uh, fellow travellers who were the um, left intellectuals and journalists who, whilst not being communists, had deep sympathies with the Soviet Union, came uh, running back to Russia as, as quickly as possible, knowing the territory and reporting on it um, effectively. Now, um, there is probably not the time in this podcast to give Western journalists and their involvement in uh, the Soviet Union um, the, the depth it deserves. So we're going to continue this one um, at some point in the, the near future. Um, but I think the, the kind of the, to sum up, really, there were very specific reasons why the largest battlefront in the war was so underreported and why it was um, so fundamentally inaccessible for Western journalists, those journalists having obviously um, fled uh, Russia as the purges intensified um, and returned home uh, aware of the kind of the very dark atmosphere uh, in in the country uh, by the late 1930s and obviously by the time the uh, war broke out, uh, Stalinist paranoia at its height made it an almost impossible environment for Western correspondents to work. Um, so, yeah, so there are very specific reasons why it was uh, such an, an underreported uh, war initially, but as time goes by, gradually, um, correspondents, particularly people like Alexander Worth, who wrote on the freeing of uh, Leningrad, were able to uh, apply their trade more effectively. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. And again, apologies, there have been a few technical blips uh, recently, but I think we've ironed all those out now. Um, I'll be giving away a book, uh, hopefully sometime over the weekend, so do tune in, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.